Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you feel like your allergies are having a comeback tour and you want relief quickly, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny, and itchy nose and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use this directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. Welcome to Switched on Pop. I'm musicologist Nate Sloan. And I'm songwriter Charlie Harding. And we have a very special guest with us today, the author of a recent article in Pitchfork called How Autotune Revolutionized the Sound of Popular Music. Do you mind introducing yourself? Hi, it's Simon Reynolds here. We have Simon Reynolds in the studio, and we're so excited to go through this incredibly in-depth, probably the most encyclopedic thing that's been written on autotune up till this point. And it's great for us because this is, I think, a feature of pop music that is so ubiquitous that maybe we've never really actually paused to delve into it. So now here's our chance. To begin, we have to go back two decades to the birth of autotune, which was, of course, in Cher's 1998 single, Believe. Is it crazy that what I hear in that is the producers of Britney Spears' Toxic probably took that little guitar line? The ding, 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 ding. No, I don't think you're crazy. I, I think this song is a or source for so much pop music to follow. That's not over here. So, Simon, even though this was maybe the first use of autotune in a pop single, the producers of this song did not want to disclose that fact. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, they put out a story that it was a certain brand of vocoder pedal uh, they were using. And um, I don't know if it was the very first time. It was certainly the first time that anyone used autotune in a blatant way. Like, you know, it had been around maybe on the market for a year and people used it in the way it was meant to be done, which was to sort of imperceptibly correct errors in singing or actually other kind of instrumental performances, but mostly singing. And this was the first time someone used it in a very deliberate conspicuous blatant way as an effect and most people hearing it i mean i think remember hearing it, i thought it was a vocoder because i didn't have any other sort of terms of reference for what was actually changing her voice you know at that time what's striking about it is that we just thought it was a gimmick you know that was in one song didn't realize that it would become this widespread thing that became the default setting for most pop music Indeed, it was not a vocoder, as the producers misinformed the public. It was this new device called Autotune, which, as Simon says, was meant to be inconspicuous, but in this song was really pushed to the foreground. At this point, we should talk about the origins of Autotune itself. This was invented by someone who I'm sure every pop fan is familiar with, Andy Hildebrand, <laughs> founder of Anteris Audio. Can you tell us a little bit about this mysterious inventor of autotune, Simon. Yeah, I mean, he is quite well known as uh, in terms of someone involved in music technology because generally speaking, only musicians care about this stuff and people who work in recording studios. But, you know, there have been profiles of him because it is such a sort of big story. And, he, and his background is quite interesting because he started out, uh, he's a 
sort of hardcore mathematician, like, you know, does stuff that most normal people can't understand at all, incomprehensible equations and and algorithms. And he, he started out making a fortune for himself working in, in the oil industry where he developed equations or, or I don't even know algorithms that you know can interpret the data that comes from sending sound signals underground uh, it's called refle- reflection seismology and you kind of it can tell you what's down there you know in terms of oil deposits so you know this saves the oil industry a lot of money because they can drill exactly in the right place because they've got a th- technology that can tell by these sort of I don't know reflections of sound waves what the best locations are to extract from and so this you know he made a lot of money doing that he built up a very successful company and then he chucked it all in and wanted to do something involved in what his actual real passion was which was music he's actually an accomplished flute player that was his major passion alongside math and he founded this company and he was trying to think of what shall i invent and at a, the story goes uh, that at a dinner party uh, of people in that field, colleagues and friends, someone said, why can't you come up with something that helped me sing in tune? And that sort of lodged in the back of his head and he thought, yeah, there is a demand for this. I could use these same sort of equations uh, or algorithms or whatever that I've been using to find oil to sort of instantly correct uh, bad singing push it back in tune so what you're saying is that the petroleum industry gave us auto-tune yeah and which is funny because there's often things that uh, end up in the entertainment field actually have like an industrial or or even military origin like the vocoder actually came out of um, attempts to uh encrypt speech you know and then people realized uh, during world war ii i think it was and um so this is like a knock-on effect of, you know, big oil is sort of either ruining music or, 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 or giving us a whole field. As with the vocoder, we have in auto-tune uh, an invention that was made for one purpose that then is repurposed by musicians for something totally different. I think, uh, Simon, you, you do a nice job of introducing the different, uh, how, how auto-tune can be used to create these effects. And in order to... Uh, illustrate this key feature of auto-tune, which is the retuning speed. In other words, how fast the auto-tune program will correct your off pitch to the desired pitch. Uh, You can do that slowly, or you can do that quickly, or you can do that instantaneously. Uh, So in order to illustrate these different retuning speeds, I thought we could just listen to a beautiful recording uh, I made (laughs) of... (laughs) of myself singing an unforgettable gorgeous melody. Here it is without any effects whatsoever. La 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 That's all actually. <laughs> thank you, thank you. I'll take it, Simon. Okay. A little breathy. <laughs> wow, tough crowd here. Okay, we move now to just throwing some auto-tune on this recording. Uh, with a very slow retuning speed. So it'll be a little subtle. It'll slowly move the notes to uh, the quote-unquote correct pitch. La, 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 la. It's instantly better. (laughs) Yeah, and it's also very subtle. You wouldn't notice anything was being done there, really. No, no. Uh, Hopefully it still sounds like my pure voice, but just a little better. All right, now we're going to do a fast auto-tuning speed where it's very going to quickly going to shift the note to the, again, the correct pitch. La, 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 la. That sounds like a mistake. Yeah. 
I've listened to so much auto-tune music that just sounds kind of like a normal thing you'd hear on the radio, but it is clearly artificial. Yeah. I feel like it's, it's there's almost not enough of it, right? Because we're actually so used to what you talk about in your article, just like the... the Paul Migos, you need to like, or, fu- or Future, you need to really crank it up, I think. Well, we're in luck because I have gone full Migos. This is the uh, the effect now of the instantaneous retuning. Zero speed, yeah. Zero speed, exactly. So this goes just immediately from the incorrect note to the correct note. La, 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 la. It's a hit. <laughs> it's a hit. <laughs> if, I, if I got this software, I would just spend all day messing around with it. I would just could never get tired of that fat sound, I don't think. My family could. <laughs> so I think in these examples we hear the different ways that autotune can be used in its original intention to simply give a little more absolute pitch and depth to the voice and that I think we can hear in so much pop music it's ubiquitous it's very subtle uh, as in a recording like Katy Perry's Firework Or in the music of Rihanna. What do you think? Are we able to hear the use of auto-tune in these recordings? I think we just got so accustomed to it being the, the normal sound of pop music that it probably doesn't stand out anymore. It's just everything is slightly perfected, given that, you know, the soaringness of it is enhanced uh, and there's a sort of glisten to the vocals. Doing things to the vocal and improving them and EQing them and and putting the subtle bit of reverb or whatever has just been done in recording studios with pop music before you auto-tune. So it's not a natural voice that we hear in records anyway. But autotune, in this more inconspicuous use of it, it has just added an extra layer of glisten, I think, to people's voices. I love that word, glisten. And I think that what you just described, Simon, the manipulation of the voice back to the beginnings of recorded music is something we'll talk about uh, more in the second half. Yeah, I feel like the one thing that I can definitely hear is stuff that I'm not hearing, which are minor fluctuations in the voice. So what we hear a lot in pop vocal is actually very little vibrato. Vibrato is not popular in pop. It is popular in opera, not popular in pop. Now, of course, there are some classic vibratos, but when you're hearing these long notes on the Katy Perry, they are perfect and straight and flat. And likely, just because we are human beings, we are organic material, there's going to be fluctuations in each individual note, whether it's just slight changes in breath or whatever it may be. And those just get smoothed over. So that's what we're, we're not hearing something, and that is sort of the evidence of auto tune for me. Yeah, it's it's it, yeah these long sustained perfect notes. Uh, what uh, the writer Dan Barrow called the saw is like a kind of thing that is something that people really seem to like in pop music today. And maybe it's a side effect to some extent of all the vocal talent contest shows on TV, where there's this sort of emphasis on an almost athletic prowess in singing. Uh, but autotune enables people who would find it hard to do that in the live context to actually do these incredible, piercing, perfect, sustained notes. 
Moving from the invisibility of auto-tune to its ultimate conspicuousness, uh, we would have to look at some of the uh, contemporary rappers who use auto-tune and especially use that instantaneous retuning feature to really change their voice. A great example would be uh, the rapper Future uh, in a song like F Up Some Commas. Not even the most conspicuous version I've, I've ever heard. Oh yeah, and we'll talk more. Simon has some amazing examples of how autotune has sort of seeped into hip-hop, which we'll get into in a second. I'm just trying to establish the ubiquity of this style now, to the point where we can even find artists like Emma Robinson... Uh, will you tell us a little about em- Emma Robinson, Simon? Yes, Emma Robinson is someone who doesn't use autotune, but she's learned to simulate the sound of autotune because it's such a you know dominant, hegemonic even uh, sound on the radio. And and um, recording engineers talk about artifacts, which are like these sort of obviously digital effects um, that usually that you're trying to avoid, but she actually can produce them using her own sort of vocal tract. I'm really excited for Charlie to hear this. Simon, I hadn't heard of Emma Robinson before reading your article. Let's have a listen. My brains are exploding all over them. I'm so sorry, Simon. I ruined your home. Um, That's exceptional. It reminds me a little... It has this sort of like yodely kind of thing but instead of hitting the next octave it it does something really weird that it can only be described i guess as you said as vocal artifacting but it's not digital that's insane yeah. yeah it's pretty it's pretty weird isn't it um and uh i wonder how she does it you know and, and how long it took her to teach herself to make those sorts that sound emma if you're out there you have an open invitation to join us here on switched on pop now, as Simon said, autotune is not the first uh, accidental instrument in the history of music technology. We have the vocoder, popularized by artists more recently, like Imogene Heap. I don't think for everyone it might be obvious what's the difference between autotune and the vocoder. Autotune on zero or on max speed sounds strange as does vocoder. So I think the important thing to know is that the vocoder we're hearing is actually harmonies where someone's actually playing a keyboard and then singing basically, you could just say singing into that keyboard and it captures all of the phonemes of your speech, but the actual pitch is whatever you're playing on the keyboard. But they both sound weird, and it can be difficult for non-musicians to identify, but they are different instruments and totally different techniques. There's also a, a third, to confuse things, there's a third uh, instrument, um, which was actually invented by a, I think it's invented by a country musician whose name I'm blanking on, but it's most famously associated with people like Pete Frampton, uh, Roger Troutman from Zap, which is the, the talk box. And that works in a completely different way where you feed the signal from your instrument, um, usually an electric guitar, but it could be a keyboard, through this sort of tube into your mouth. And then the mouth becomes a resonant chamber for the sound. It blends with your voice and then it goes out through the vocal microphone. So all those songs that Pete Frampton had in the mid-70s, like Show Me The Way, have these little um, talk box guitar solos in. Roger Troutman in Zap in their own songs like More Bounce of the Ounce, but also later in the Dr. Dre song um, California Love, where he has a, a, a cameo appearance. 
doing this similar thing. It's, they're all sort of easy to confuse because they all basically sound like cyborg <laughs> singers, really, but they're actually operating in different ways. And if you, you know, work in the music field or recording field, you know, they're very distinct sounds, you know, that you choose for different reasons. I don't have California Love, but I do have one of uh, my favorite Roger Troutman recordings uh, to, to use as, uh, as an example here. <laughs> I hear a lot of modern Bruno Mars borrowing from that exact sound. So yeah, Simon points out, you know, devices like the vocoder and the talk box have been appearing in rap uh, for decades at this point, but autotune introduces this new element. We can hear it very early on, actually, surprisingly, perhaps you you cite maybe the first example of autotune being used in hip hop or with rapping in a song by the Europop band Eiffel 65 called Too Much of Heaven. Come on, my friend, let me tell you what it's all about. I've never heard this. This is like, when did this come out? I think it came out in 2000 or 2001. Yeah, I, I was a bit surprised. I remember that song at the time and I actually liked it and, and bought it. What's, what, is, what is buying music? No, <laughs> yeah, it was, I even bought the CD single of it, which is like, a, you know, fantastically obscure, ancient artifact at this point. Yeah, I, I, you know, they, it's basically a pop song that has a bit of rapping, a sort of semi-rapping in the middle. So whether hip-hop fans would... Uh, and scholars of hip-hop would accept it as rapping, I don't know. But it seemed to me as the very first example of it that I could find, anyway. Though Eiffel 65 may be the surprising forebears of this technique, it is undoubtedly T-Pain who really turns it into an art in the hip-hop form. Uh, We could play any variety of T-Pain tracks here, but I'm going to go with one of my all-time favorites, Chopped and Screwed. I feel like I'd be remiss to say that the T-Pain effect is, of course, more than just auto-tune. He's got harmonizers, he's got phasers, he's got other things on his voice which are taking the auto-tune effect and maximizing it even further. But the, the heart of it, yes, auto-tune. And he's used, I think he's using effects um, like chopping and screwing effects from dj screw that is a houston based aesthetic of sort of slowing down hip-hop tracks and putting little interruptions in in the beat you know jolts you know so uh, and i guess there's some kind of uh, lewd uh, kind of (laughs) metaphor going on there as well it's it's absolutely lewd and at the same time very tender i can't recommend enough everyone going out and listening to chopped and screwed especially the the ludicrous uh guest feature so t-pain uh there's something perhaps that's kind of a novelty about it and yet something surprising happens as a result of t-pain's adoption of autotune simon what what effects does uh, T-Pain's use of this new technology have on uh, hip-hop in general? Well, a lot of rappers just really liked what he was doing. And, and I think he almost became a bit like their generation's equivalent to someone like Roger Troutman from Zap. Like, you know, someone they thought was like this sort of robot lover man, you know, doing these very futuristic but sexy slow jam type tunes like the one we just heard, Chopped and Screwed. And so Lil Wayne... Did some things in this vein. Um, Snoop Dogg did a track called Sensual Seduction that was um, very much like T-Pain influenced. 
uh, Kanye West just loved it and, and eventually did a whole album, 8088 uh, and Heartbreak in that vein. And uh, it seemed to sort of, for some reason, the autotune sound seemed to open up this sort of, this this sensitivity in rappers where they would talk about feelings and being sad and, and heartbroken and and get quite sort of soppy and, and maudlin. <laughs> Almost autotune somehow enabled them, I wouldn't say exactly hiding through autotune, but somehow that technique freed them up actually it freed them up to try singing which you know you wouldn't a rapper can't necessarily sing but having this pitch correction device uh, that also made you sound kind of otherworldly and angelic it enabled them to sort of croon and do things that they wouldn't maybe have tried before the effects of autotune on the sound and style of hip-hop like simon says are uh, immediately obvious if we listen to uh, a song like how to love by Lil wayne you had a lot of crooks try to steal your heart Never really had luck, couldn't never figure out how to love, how to love. And the paragon of this new style, I think uh, Simon correctly identifies as Kanye West's 808 and Heartbreaks. Uh, a song like Heartless is, is a perfect example. In the night, I hear him talk the cold story. At this point in the late 2000s, autotune has seeped into every corner of the pop music industry, both invisibly and highly conspicuously. And uh, you know what's coming next. When we come back after a short break, we will explore the backlash to autotune. Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. If you have allergies, then I've got a familiar scenario for you. You wake up on a beautiful spring morning and peek outside to get a feel of that nice breeze, but then you start to feel a little tickle in your nostrils. That tickle is the spring air telling you to go be a hermit and avoid the outside because you'll soon be a sniffling, sneezing mess. But don't listen to it. Allergies suck, but a good nasal spray makes all the difference. I personally learned that I suffer from adult onset allergies, and it's a real bummer. But a good allergy med makes all the difference for my ability to go out in the springtime to smell magnolias, my favorite flower. If you also want relief quickly to get back to breathing in the spring air, you can try Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O allergy.com. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies. In the late 2000s, we might reach what you call peak autotune. A song like Boom Boom Pow by the Black Peas represents both the possibilities and maybe the excesses that are uh, afforded by autotune. I got that rock and roll, that future flow, that at this point, are we at the death of autotune? Yeah, it's 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 sort of like it's everywhere, and um, I really like that song. But and I particularly like the lyric where he goes like, "I've got that future flow, I've got that digital spit," because that's such a perfect description of what autotune does, which you know it takes the human voice, which you know comes out of the mouth, which is you know has more bacteria in it than then <laughs> any other part of the body, amazingly. And um, but it sort of makes it this sort of post-human, pristine 
beautiful but sterile thing. So Digital Spit sort of uh, poetically captures, you know, what's happening with autotune. The Black Eyed Peas, you know, are very much doing this almost retro future thing. And I can remember feeling like there's too much autotune. I've had enough. Surely it's over now. I wouldn't say I disagreed necessarily when Jay-Z did, uh, you know, his song Death of Autotune. Uh, I felt like it too much of a good thing. You weren't alone, as Charlie adumbrated uh, in 2009. Jay Z drops his own uh, kind of response to the auto tune craze: "Death of Auto Tune." Listening now in context, I hadn't noticed the opening. La da da, da. You know, it's like it's what a, he's it's so on the nose. He's showing off. He's bragging. He doesn't need auto tune. Oh, or isn't it that I read it more like he's intentionally out of tune and isn't trying to hide it? Exactly. He doesn't need. No, he's like he doesn't need to hide it because he's such a star. And look at this. I can sing completely out of tune. We're on the same page. Or I would say, I would say. I mean, after reading Simon's article, I would say more. It's like this expression of let's return to authenticity. Right. Yeah, I mean, for for a lot of sort of hip hop purists, um, you know, rapping uh, hip hop is about uh, M- the lyricism of the MC. It, 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 you know, when when rap songs started to have R and B choruses, that was considered like selling out to pop music, and there was a, c- a certain sort of feeling that it was all about having fantastic lyrics. And Jay Z says none of my tunes have melodies in. You know, th- there was a kind of a backlash against this sort of popified, melodic form of rap music. And Jay-Z was far from alone. Uh, Simon reports, Death Cab for Cutie protested the use of autotune at the Grammy Awards. They said, let's really try to get music back to its roots of actual people singing and sounding like human beings. In 2010, Time names it one of the 50 worst inventions of the modern era. And T-Pain uh, sort of steps forward to assert the, the craft and talent that goes into his use of autotune in a wonderful quote that Simon's pulled out. He said, a lot of math went into that S-word. He said, it would take us an effing billion minutes to explain to regular mother effers, but I really studied this S-word. <laughs> I know why it catches certain notes and why it doesn't catch certain notes. Uh, on second thought, reading that quote on a family-friendly podcast may not have been the best idea. Um, and then even pioneers of vocal effects like Daft Punk in 2013 kind of go back to real voices and instruments on their album Random Access Memory. So there does seem to be this uh, genre-wide uh, backlash against autotune. And uh, Simon has a great uh, line, I think, that captures uh, this state of affairs. He calls it a deeply conflicted confusion in our desires, simultaneously craving the real and the true, while continuing to be seduced by digital's perfection and the facility and flexibility of use it offers. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you can see that sort of contradiction playing out in a lot of people live their lives where... There's this obsession with analog formats like vinyl, but the vinyl always comes with download codes. And so you think like, well, are people actually in practice actually just listening, you know, on their phone or tablet or whatever, and the vinyl is just there to sit there as a sort of symbol of some golden age of, you know, the recording industry and and, and rock when it meant something, you know. It's, it's, it's very odd, you know. Nowadays with rap records, you can't 
buy the CD of many important rap records by people like Future or Young Thug, but you can get the vinyl version. You know, it's very it's very odd. There's like uh, you can either buy it as an MP3 or you stream it, or you can just um, buy the vinyl version for like forty bucks. You know, which just seems absurd and seems like a purely symbolic act that, in practice, people are, are not actually listening to. I wouldn't have thought. It's it's so fun to look at this debate with uh, it, this this is happening when Death of Auto Tune is like 2010 2009 close enough. So looking at this argument with a little bit of space makes me realize the absurdity of the criticism of digital as not real and as you're pointing out like analog has this sort of realness to it as if we aren't this corporeal form making transient sounds that are being somehow captured onto some sort of mechanical device whether it's made with tubes and circuits or it's some sort of digital algorithm it's still a a transmission of our actual human experience which is not real and so the realness is really almost like a nostalgia for a certain sonic timbre. We like the sound of vinyl, but it's not better or worse. It's just a different form of transmitting what is not the original. It's a very, like, at this point, for me, these debates are very silly. It's a pretty contrived thing, having a slab of vinyl that's had these, you know, grooves pressed into it, and then you drag a sort of uh, a ne- a needle made of carbonized whatever like diamond or something and and it produces these vibrations that are then sent through speakers you know that's a fairly complicated electromechanical process it's not it's not natural it's not like having someone in front of you singing you know and so really the the artifice of the human voice and of all music uh, begins with all recording really already with recording we're into some kind of spooky unreality you know it's a great point. You know, we can go back through the history of popular music and find innumerable moments where people have been uh, manipulating the sound of their voice. I mean, you point out we can hear this in Elvis's early recordings, uh, the use of the slapback effect on his vocals. Train And we can definitely hear it in recordings by the Beatles like Tomorrow Never Knows, where John Lennon runs his voice through the Leslie speaker that you would have normally used on a Hammond B3 organ. We can go back even further. In the 1920s, the art of crooning was entirely dependent on recording technology. Crooning, which was in this incredibly popular style from artists like Bing Crosby and Rudy Valley, was all about taking advantage of the intimacy that the microphone gave to create this entirely new vocal approach. Here, epitomized by one of my favorite crooners, Whispering Jack Smith. Baby face, you've got the cutest little baby face. There's not another one could take your place. Baby face, my poor heart is jumping. You should have started something. Something we need to acknowledge is the artifice of all recording in which relative volumes of instruments are manipulated, right? There's no way that you can sing with that quietness over a piano. The piano has, still has some energy in it, and you can actually hear that the level in the piano is brought down. We have the same thing when we listen to any modern rock music that has both huge, epic drums and an acoustic guitar at the same time. This is an impossibility. You couldn't do that in a live performance without some kind of amplification. And in recorded music, we level all these things so that the guitar is way louder than it's actually physically possible compared to the drums. And so we're hearing 
I, I think in all recorded music, we just have to acknowledge the creative flexibility that we have with these tools, particularly with the voice. And there is no real voice. The voice is sitting somehow in a, a creative medium of sound. I think that's well said, Charlie. And it's uh, definitely evidenced by one of the earliest recordings ever made in 1890 when Thomas Edison tried to make a talking doll. Oh. And I'm sorry, because what I'm about to play may give you nightmares for the rest of your life. This is uh, the, the only recently have they did they figure out a way to uh, actually play these 1890 recordings. And this is what it sounds like. So fast forwarding now back to the 2010s, Simon, you you uh, identify another complaint against uh, the use of autotune, which is that it might depersonalize singers. It sort of erases their identity. And I wonder what, what might be a, a rejoinder to, to that claim, that autotune depersonalizes singers. Well, um, it's certainly true that it seems to have some kind of effect where it kind of flattens out the sort of natural harmonics or timbre characteristics of a of a singer makes them a bit more uniform so i noticed it say with britney spears recordings where you know she's got this wonderful sort of husky croak of a voice but by the time of um the early sort of 2010 2011 till the world ends and and songs like that she's sounding pretty sort of anonymous like a lot, lot of that huskiness has sort of been ironed out of her voice but i think what happens is that there's more emphasis on sort of phrasing and rhythmic tricks and just sort of personality that comes to the fore and sort of almost triumphs against the standardizing effects of of auto-tune and and particularly with rapping you have increasingly really idiosyncratic mcs just doing uh you know really oddball stuff almost using the the basic template of of auto-tune as a standard thing that everyone has and then within that they flex this sort of this sort of really quirky personality. I love that because it suggests not uh, that not autotune necessarily depersonalizes singers, but that it creates a new imperative for singers to find a way to express themselves through and with this technology to become cyborgs, essentially. And I think you do uh, a really nice job of pointing out that certain singers have this ability to make autotune really blend with their voices. Certainly Katy Perry and Rihanna, who we listened to earlier, and uh, someone who you point out as a kind of a master of, of using autotune would be Kesha. Wake up in the morning feeling like P. Diddy. Hey, what up, girl? Grab my glasses, I'm out the door. I'm gonna hit this city. Let's Before go. I leave, brush my teeth with a bottle of Jack. Cause when I leave for the night, I ain't coming back. I'm you know, Kesha's the immediate sort of proof that personality thrives. I mean, she used it to sort of amp up this sort of bratty, uh, somewhat annoying persona, you know, that as soon as one of her songs came on, you instantly knew it was Kesha. And, and there are all kinds of clever little ticks throughout that song using different vocal effects that amp up this instantly identifiable Kesha character, really. It's like a persona. And she uses it to sort of, uh, you know, she's kind of swaggering and needling at the listener's ear with these sort of uh, borderline annoying 
uh, vocal tricks. Something surprising happens at this point. Despite the backlash against autotune, the claims that it depersonalizes and and ruins the authenticity of popular music, uh, autotune starts to enter the bastions of authenticity. And I'm thinking particularly here of styles like indie rock. We see artists like Radiohead, Grimes, and even Bon Iver starting to use autotune, as in his song Woods. It's probably a good point to point out that although we're using the word autotune all the time, in actual fact, um, autotune has become sort of like the the most well-known brand name for a whole group of vocal technologies. You know, the, there's Melodyne, there's Wave, there's only about six or seven others. Um, I think Bon Iver might have been using something called Prismizer on that song. I'm not actually totally sure but uh essentially you know to most people's ears it sounds like autotune and they're all more or less working in the same way of correcting pitch some of them do really complicated things in terms of what people call vocal design like melodyne allows you to kind of graphically present vocals or or instrumental sounds on a screen and you just kind of stretch them using the cursor and you twist them and you put all kinds of wobbles in them and you can move them around and change the phrasing the accenting the sort of rhythmic articulation of a performance in these very subtle or extreme uh, ways so um yeah bon Iver, you know was an, one of a number of sort of left field indie alternative musicians who thought ah actually there is something interesting about this this you know it's the dominant sound of pop music maybe i can take it on and and use it and that tune he uses it to sort of add a new dimension to what he already was doing which is this sort of kind of lonesome folky introspective pop one of the things that your appreciation of this form has helped me realize in this track particularly is you have this naked vocal and as you put it he's using it as an artistic technique it sounds like he's perfected his vibrato to work with the auto-tune effect so that there's these moments where he's holding out these long notes and then there's these kind of yeah he's got these wobbles and those wouldn't happen naturally had he not been thinking about the auto-tune, the effect that's going to go on the vocal and the affect that he's trying to get across. So I never had appreciated it at that level of depth because it's actually hard to get the auto-tune to do the thing that it's not supposed to do. It's supposed to put you in tune and all of a sudden he's intentionally making it go out of tune for a pseudo vibrato effect. This has become a move that quite a lot of uh, people from the sort of Bon Iver, uh, pitchfork sort of world have kind of done you know um, vampire weekend did it this year steve malkmus of pavement who you know couldn't be more archetypally indie rock and you know was in the 90s associated with lo-fi you know and this sort of idea of homespun recording approach that's full of distortion and and these sort of supposedly more honest and authentic and gritty and real sounds you know he embraced on his latest album he embraced autotune and did things with it so it's become this sort of move where the smarter sort of people in the indie alternative world have thought let's give it a go let's see if we can you know use it to bring out some dimension of what we're doing but also they probably think maybe we get get on the radio more better you know 
<laughs> so great. I, at this point, I'll just reiterate something Simon said that's important, right? We're talking about auto-tune, but we're using it, uh, as you mentioned in your article, kind of the way you would use a brand name like Kleenex or Xerox to really stand in for any type of pitch correction of which there are now you know, numerous uh, available to artists. Auto-tune uh, at this point is used for commercial purposes, for artistic purposes. It is ubiquitous. I don't think it's going anywhere. Um, I thought actually as perhaps a, maybe an ill-designed exercise here, we could um, pick uh, a number, Charlie, between 1 and 100, if you would. 72. 72. Okay, so now we're going to go to the Billboard Hot 100. We're as of the as of the date of this recording, we're going to go to the the seventy second song on the Billboard Hot 100, which is "Jet Lag" by Future and Juice World featuring Young Scooter. You couldn't pick something that was more auto-tuned, I think, than that. Really, probably it's the most auto-tuned tune in in the, the top seventy two. I was gonna say we don't even have to listen to it. We just know, but we should. Let's do one more. Simon, can can we get a number between one and a hundred? Sixteen. Sixteen. Let's scroll to sixteen on the Billboard Hot 100, and we have uh, Mo Bamba by Sheck Wes. Um, let's let's listen to that for a moment. Sheck Wes got so many flows. I do it all. I know as of this recording, this is still the number one most listened to track on Spotify this week, and it's on the charts. What's interesting about the auto tune for me? I don't know what you're hearing, but it sounds like a case of not using enough auto tune. Like the, the song has this sort of authentic out of pitch sound and then you can hear on those long notes some of those long notes do stay in tune an abnormal amount and then other notes are completely out of tune i can't figure out how they're using it what, what are you hearing yeah it sounded quite sort of wavery and borderline grating which is clearly deliberate um yeah i, I wouldn't have said that was an exceptionally heavily auto-tuned song but it's you know it's hard to say now like now, now you can't really trust your ears i think it's one of the effects of Auto-tune. Yeah, I'd be curious, you know, if we had picked a country song, I wonder if we would have heard auto-tune. Probably. Again, maybe in a, in a way so subtle that we wouldn't be able to put our finger on it, but it's chances are in any track on the Billboard Hot, Hot 100, we're hearing some kind of auto-tune. One of the things I know about from modern vocal production, and you talk about in your article, is that I think, I think you said like 99% of songs we should accept are likely auto-tune. It's often happening depending on the style of music in a way which is meant to emphasize the performance over the effect of auto-tune. So on a country track, it's very likely that the song will first be melodined, where they use that, that sort of exacting pitch correction. You can do every little note, you can add vibrato, and it's going to be done in a way which should be subtle, and you can't hear any of the artifacting. And even after that, sometimes they'll still put on a little bit of the Ontario's auto-tune just to smooth things out. But you can't, it's not perceivable unless you really have that deep knowledge Really what is perceivable now is when things are mildly out of tune yeah. and then you know it's not there. With the use of auto-tune and similar technologies is, is they're actually often primarily used as a labor-saving device because in the old days, a lot of time time was spent trying to get a good vocal take and you know you might get one that was perfectly in pitch but it didn't have enough soul or personality or the phrasing wasn't right you know and, and um, there are all kinds of complicated ways that people try to get around that, producers. But now you can just put it all in pitch and 
put all your energy into getting the most characterful, you know, uh, or rhythmically interesting performance. And then it just makes the whole recording process easier. It does seem like we live in a, in a, in an age now where auto-tune, uh, despite Jay-Z's claims uh, about the death of auto-tune, is not going anywhere. And uh, Simon, as you point out, this is really well illustrated by uh, Jay-Z's most recent <laughs> release featuring uh, with him and Beyonce released uh, as The Carters. Their hit single from that album, Ape, sh- S-word, is coded in auto-tune through and through. So we are now living in an age of auto-tune, and I, I really appreciate, Simon, this this article you've written because... A, it gives us a sense of the history of where this technique came from. And I think it gives us a new frame for understanding it uh, and accepting it. In the case, I think, of, of someone like me who tends to be somewhat of a, of a Luddite when it comes to techniques like this. There's a way to locate artistry in auto-tune. And uh, uh, in the future, I hope we can uh, add this, Charlie, to our ar- arsenal of sort of analysis here. When we talk about groups like Migos, when we talk about future you know, the way they interact with this technology is a fundamental part of their their craft and their art. So rather than deny it or, or complain about it, I think we have to enter into it fully. Uh, we are living in the age of auto-tune. Any final thoughts, gentlemen, before we close out here? Well, I think one of the, the key things was really when people started um, listening to their own voices when they were rapping or singing on auto-tune and and uh so you know with a rapper like future or quaver amigos or uh young thug they are hearing in real time what their voice sounds like so they're pushing certain effects they're getting little wobbles and and shivers and shudders and and strange floaty ethereal effects very deliberately um and they sort of grown as artists through uh auto-tune and you know in, in some of their cases like Quavo and, and Future, you will never hear them not auto-tune. You know, it's always affected. There's no untampered with uh, original performance. It comes out like that, and they've learned how to sort of really push it as a technology. It makes me think a lot about how, it, at this point, it's hard to, I think, assert sort of ideas of authenticity to certain recording technologies and techniques because of their absolute ubiquity, right? Like, Nate, you've got here a, like, MacBook Air, right? You have a music studio on this thing that would cost millions of dollars back in the 70s, and this isn't even the top-of-the-line computer. So you can decide, do I want to use tape distortion? Do I want to use uh, auto-tune? Do I want to use phasing techniques? And everything is kind of available, so it's a question of what are you choosing versus not choosing? And in many ways, the idea of recording to tape being authentic might come from a sense of the first thing that uh, maybe punk bands recorded to was like onto an old tape machine because that's what was available. Um, now, if you want to record to tape, it's actually quite posh because you have to go to a, a studio that has maintained these old machines and are in working condition. You have to fork a lot of money over, whereas people who are recording in their bedrooms today are recording on the computer that you have right in front of you. And in order to get some of those authentic sounds, now they're putting on plugins that sound like old tape machines. But it's really just a question of what do you want to use, not so much of of what you have access to because relative access is so low. And I think it makes us need to think about effects and the value that effects have entirely differently because access is ubiquitous. 
You've been listening to Switch on Pop. This episode was produced by me, Nate Sloan. And me, Charlie Harding. You can find more episodes of our show at switchedonpop.com, Radio Public, the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, any podcast player you choose. Our show is edited by the amazing Bill Lance, uh, our community manager, Sarah Terry, and uh, Luke Harris does all our design. Uh, I want to give a huge thanks to Simon Reynolds uh, for joining us today. We'll uh, throw up a link to his fantastic Pitchfork article. uh, And uh, I'll also take this opportunity to direct you to his other brilliant work, especially uh, the the definitive book for me on the the history of dance music, Energy Flash. Uh, Check out more of of Simon's work at various publications and especially that book. Uh, Anything else, Charles? We'll be back again with a new episode in two weeks. And until then... Thanks Thanks for for listening. One final shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. You know what's a terrible question? What's your favorite part of having nasal allergies? I don't know. Absolutely nothing. Luckily, you might be able to find some relief with Astapro. Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. And it starts working in just 30 minutes. Get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief with Astapro. Go to astaproallergy.com for a discount. That's astaproallergy.com. Use this directive for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.